That's what she said is fueled by Gatorade. Whatever path you take to greatness, Gatorade is there to fuel it. Greatness starts with G. The ESPN College Football Podcast is now five days a week. Hosts Kirk Herbstreet, David Pollock, and Kevin Nagandi are back and joined this year by Reese Davis, Matt Barry, Paul Feinbaum, Booger McFarland, and Joey Galloway. From weekend reaction to weekend previews, the ESPN College Football Podcast has it covered by the voices and perspectives you'll want to hear from. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hey, I'm Terry Stotts, and my dilemma is trying to figure out with what to do with all this free time that I have now that I'm no longer the coach of the Blazers. Well, Coach, I am very much employed. I'm, in fact, a slave to my work. Uh, but I do have a very good friend who I call KK, who was recently uh, fun employed. She chose to leave her company of 19 years, I think it was, 17, somewhere, nearly two decades. Um, and so she was fun employed for over a year and mastered uh, the art of figuring it out. So I asked her for some tips, and here's what KK had to say. Number one, pending your comfort level these days, definitely travel. Number two, pick up a new hobby or skill or resurrect one that needs finessing, something that's been on the back burner for years, but there was never enough time, something that makes you a better you. Number three, volunteer, which I know she's been doing here with the Syrian Community Network here in Chicago, uh, which is awesome. And her bonus tip, Take the first few days to chill and reflect on what you've accomplished. Honor it and move on. Oh, and sleep in whenever you want to. Pretty good advice, Coach. I'll be checking back in with you and see how it's going. That's what she said. So before I could even ask Coach Dots a question, he turned the tables on me with a surprise reverse Spanish Inquisition. Let's just say I didn't expect it. Before we start, I got questions for you. Okay. (laughs) One is... (laughs) Twenty-three, <laughs> twenty-three. is that a high school girl with a Michael Jordan crush? Yes. Yes. Okay. That has never, that has never gone away. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I look and, at my AirPods case. It's still, it's, oh. <laughs> it's, it's still the crush remains. <laughs> and of all your Halloween costumes, what's your favorite? On TV or in life? Well, I had both. That was, I was going to, I was going to say both. Uh, Moira Rose has become the favorite uh, because I had to work a little bit harder on that one. That accent was tough. Um, And in life, I would say it's a toss up between a really excellent homemade Wonder Woman that was like not even completed. And this was college. So I went out just like pins, keeping everything together. Um, But but Wonder Woman was a favorite. And then I really crushed a uh, Tom Petty plus Alice in Wonderland from the video right after he died. My husband was Tom Petty and I was the Alice in Wonderland. I did see that picture. I did a little. Yeah, that was a good one. Did see that picture? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, it's a toss up though. There's too many to. There's too many to. You know, to decide. Okay, Uh, just a minute. I got two more questions. Okay. Uh, All right. What was your best track and field event? Javelin. Really? Yeah. And uh, did you play field hockey and basketball at Cornell? No, I got recruited for both of them for different schools, but not Cornell. And then I was considering walking on basketball after my freshman year when I was like, okay, I can, you know, get good enough grades and do track. Um, And then I got mono in the summer and I was like, you know what, let's just stick with track. Okay. So the Spanish Inquisition hit me. I know. Start off the podcast. I know. (laughs) That's what she said. Don't forget to go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate five stars, please, and give a review. Like Kyle from Boulder, who said, The podcast has just about everything you can look for. Humor, insightfulness, and variety. Sarah's a great interviewer. She keeps both the interviewee and the listener engaged. If you want to learn something new about a subject, enjoy conversation, or just want to listen to the absurdity of life, this is the podcast for you. Thank you, Kyle from Boulder. He also suggested I have Rower and Dr. Ginevra Stone on as a guest. I will check out her story. Thank you, Kyle. Will you be the next person to have their review featured? Well, you got to post a review to find out.
That's what she said. This week's guest is one of my favorites to chat with over on my radio show, Spain and Fitz, and he's always been generous with his time mid-NBA season while coaching the Blazers. I wanted to pick his brain for longer than just a few minutes, especially as he's coming to more free time. Terry Stotts is this week's guest, former professional basketball player and NBA coach, most recently employed as the head coach of the Portland Trail Blazers. He parted ways with the team in June after nine seasons as the second winningest coach in franchise history including eight consecutive playoff appearances, the longest streak in the league. He was 402 and 318 in his nine seasons as Blazers coach. So we talk about his childhood, including growing up on Guam, playing for and working under his mentor, George Carl, coaching superstar Damian Lillard, his take on player power in the NBA, his favorite coaches and players to game plan against, being fun employed, and what's next for him. Enjoy the convo. That's what she said. So whenever this gentleman comes on my radio show, the first thing he asks is, did you win around the horn? And if I did not, he calls it a reality rig job. And it has become a joke on the show. And I also agreed that if I do not win, something must be off. Uh, thankfully, on the day of this recording, I did, in fact, emerge victorious. So all is right with the word world. Nothing was rigged. And it's a perfect time to have Coach Terry Stotts on. And to start with that, are you a regular viewer? Is that uh, is that how you're aware of the strange scoring system on Around the Horn? Uh, actually, I'm an occasional viewer, uh, but obviously I haven't watched the show yet today. But uh, from what I saw in your Instagram, it was because of the earrings. Yes, yes. Bigger earrings, fewer mutes is what I'm going with. Uh, so now I consider it good luck. Uh, I was doing some prep for this, and I recognized uh, that as a child you, you moved around a lot. And one of these things is not like the other. Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin, Indiana, and Guam. So explain to me how this Midwestern boy, son of a coach who's moving around, presumably because of all the coaching jobs, ends up in Guam. Well, you're right. Uh, my, I was born in Iowa and we lived in Iowa, Illinois, and Wisconsin. And uh, after four brutal winters, not only weather-wise, but basketball-wise, uh, the government of Guam was recruiting teachers to go to Guam in 1969. And... Uh, as it happened, my parents, I, I appreciate the fact now being older that they just uprooted a family of six, four kids and, and oh, two adults. Geez. And we went to Guam in 1969 in the middle of the Vietnam War. Uh, it was uh, it was a unique experience. I have more of appreciation for what my parents did back then than, you know, I was 11 years old and thought, hey, this is we're going to Guam. So what? So anyway, that's where uh, that's why I ended up there um, between the Wisconsin winters and uh, my parents looking for a change of scenery with warmer weather. How long were you in Guam? I was there for five years. Uh, my parents ended up divorcing after five years. My dad ended up staying there for another 18 years. Oh, geez. OK, wow. Uh, that's those are interesting years to be an American in Guam and then to come back. I remember talking to Lisa Baird, who's the commissioner of the NWSL. And I can't remember. She lived somewhere in South America, I think it was. And she said she came back to America and like just didn't even know that people wore jeans. And everyone thought it was very strange that she was always wearing like khakis and other kinds. So when you get back to the States and you're 16 years old, peak, you know, awkward puberty times, did you feel like you fit right back in or were there things about having lived in Guam that you had to adjust to maybe leaving behind? Uh, you know, it wasn't about adjusting. I, I had some trepidation about going there. Uh, I went, so I lived with guardians in Bloomington, Indiana and the guardians I lived with, uh, he actually was my uh, junior high coach on Guam. And oh, wow. I ended up living with him and his wife for the last two years of high school. And, I had some trepidation about after being on Guam for five years, uh, would I fit in? How would I compete basketball wise? Where would I be academically? And so I just didn't know. Uh, as it turned out, I got a very good education on Guam. I was ahead of the curve going into my junior year. Um, basketball was obviously I had a good basketball career, but just a little bit of the fear of the unknown, um, you know, having lived on Guam and it's, different lifestyle there, obviously, especially back then. And going to Indiana, my probably my biggest fear was about basketball because it's known as the basketball state mm -hmm. and Hoosier hysteria. And I just, I was hoping I'd be able to cut it. Sounds like you did. Uh, you were a 
1976 Indiana All-Star. You helped your high school to um, a pretty serious, I think, sectional run right there first. Um, and you were 6'8". So I wonder, did you have a lot of catch-up? You said academically you were fine after Guam, but did you have enough basketball leadership with your father and others that when you got back to Indiana, you were ready to go and fit right in? Yeah, you know... Every um, So I would come back to the States every other year when we were on Guam. So uh, the summer of 71, the summer of 73, I came back. I went to basketball camps. Nice. And, you know, I competed well with other kids my age. So I knew I would compete. But uh, going to a camp in Galesburg, Illinois, you know, you don't know how you're going to compete at the high school level in Indiana. So uh, things things worked out well. You know, I had a good two-year career uh you know, two-year stint at Bloomington High School North, and and it worked out. Um, but it was just, it was like I said, it was the fear of unknown because there are a lot of good, uh, a lot of good basketball players out there. You end up at Oklahoma, and you get a BS in zoology, and then a master's in business administration. Eight years later, on a postgraduate scholarship, what happened in between, and what was the zoology for? What was the well, intent there? Well, one is I'm going to correct you is zoology instead I'm of so zoology. Sorry. Zoology, okay. Zoology, and uh, it's the study I was of Alonzo Mourning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was a pre dental major, and uh, to be accepted into dental school, you basically needed a science. Pre dental was not a major, so you needed to major in a science, and so I chose zoology. Uh, you know, it could have been microbiology or chemistry or physics or something like that, but I chose zoology. And uh, actually, I was uh, accepted into dental school at OU, but uh, because I was drafted and I wanted to pursue a, a career in basketball, I passed on that. Uh, my master's eight years later was I was looking kind of for a functional degree because uh, at, by that point, I knew I wasn't going to go to dental school. So getting a job with a zoology major, I didn't think... Um, would lend itself to too many careers. So I thought a MBA would be a, a good functional degree that would open some doors uh, after I'd finished playing. So has there been any moment since you rejected that acceptance to dental school that you said, I wish I'd gone on to be a dentist? <laughs> you know, I'm very fortunate. Uh, you know, I'm 63. I have very few regrets in my life. And uh, not going to dental school was not a regret. Excellent. But I do like to brag about the fact that I was accepted. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Sure. And that you know how to say zoology, which I'm sure comes up a lot when people mispronounce <laughs> it. Um, that might be that might be your word of the day. If we don't go with dilemma, we might just go with zoology. Well, actually, uh, I don't correct. Usually I don't correct people, but I felt comfortable enough with you to correct yes, you. Yes. I, I always want to be corrected. I prefer to do things right and know what it's supposed to be than cling to my own ignorance. I find well, too many people. You know, English major and all that. <laughs> That's right. I should probably know that. In fact, I deep in the recesses of my brain, something tells me I've been corrected on that one before. So yeah, you get drafted by the Rockets in 1980, but uh, didn't find a spot on the team, which sends you to Italy. And then to George Carl's CBA team, how long were you in Italy for? Uh, I was there until uh, middle of November. And uh, it's not a good trivia note, but uh, actually the, that year was the first year that you could change Americans in midseason uh, during the season. So in 1980, I was the first American ever changed in midseason. And wow. that team ended up winning the championship after they – change for uh, Tom Boswell for, for me. So I fought the coach. They needed a rebounder, not a shooter. And they, so they, they got it right the second time, but uh, I enjoyed my time in, in Cantu, Italy. Uh, it was a great experience. And then, but really it changed my life for the better. I wouldn't have guessed that at the time, but going to Great Falls, Montana and playing for George, I met my wife in Great Falls, Montana uh, I wouldn't be the coach of the Blazers or had an NBA career if it weren't for my move to Great Falls. So as difficult as that was to uh, be changed, they call it change. You can call it cut. But yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, as difficult that, as that was at the time, it turned out to be uh, one of the best things that ever happened. So you say that, and actually, I 
appreciate that that's both the truth and a really good way to view a setback. But is there any part of you that looks back and says, I wish somehow I had managed to make the roster for the Rockets or had a chance as a player in the NBA um, instead of bouncing around and, and playing in you know a couple different places, Spain and, and CBA? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, I was one of my regrets is that I'd never played in an NBA game. I played in a preseason game. So uh, but that was a regret I didn't have much control over. Uh, when I got drafted, um, there was a, a forward who was drafted ahead of me, John Stroud, out of Mississippi. Uh, they made a trade for Calvin Garrett uh, on draft day who played the same position. So there really wasn't a spot for me on the roster at Houston. It was only 11-man roster. So I don't have any regrets about going to Europe. Um, you know, I certainly regret not making an NBA team. But uh, honestly, I, I wasn't quite good enough. Uh, I, it would have been, had been the, just the perfect situation for me to make a roster. Yeah. So you end up meeting George Carl, and obviously he becomes a huge part of your career as a coach. Um, as a player playing for him, what was the relationship like? Did you hit it off from the beginning? Uh, we did. He was. Uh, I first met him when I was getting ready for the draft in 1980, and he was an assistant coach with the San Antonio Spurs. And he ran the workout when I was there. Uh, obviously, he remembered the workout when I got cut from Italy. Uh, he he recruited me to come to Great Falls. Um, I had some doubts about going there. The day I went there it was twenty three below zero, and that is oh. that was not wind chill. That was that was real. T- they didn't even have wind chill back then. That was twenty three <laughs> below. Period. Um, but you know, we had a we developed a great friendship. Obviously, uh, he was finding his way as a head coach, as a young head coach. I think he was twenty nine at the time. Uh, and you know, he was born to be a coach and I was very fortunate to spend three years with him, uh, as a player and, you know, just, just the whole basketball experience, but more than anything else, it was the friendship that we developed. I'm trying to think when I just had a couple weeks ago, Stan Van Gundy on, he told me a story about his own father benching him because he didn't think he had put effort into a play. I, I think being the, the son of a coach or the daughter of a coach goes one or two of two ways when you have experiences with coaches and other stops is either you absolutely respect them and you understand the work that they put in and you're great, you know, end up being a, a, you know, kind of another coach on the court or potentially you're one of those people that knows a lot about what goes into it, thinks they know better, has a great memory, can repeat what the coach said. And when they, you know, go against something they've previously said, you're always the first to chime in. Were you more likely to be the, uh, the coach's uh, pet or someone who uh, butted heads a little? Uh, we didn't butt heads. Um, I do think George appreciated my basketball knowledge on the court. Um, and I, and you know the CBA, players came and go. Uh, and for me to play with one team for three seasons, I think spoke a lot, uh, one, of our friendship, but more importantly, uh, the fact that he respected my ability on the court. And I was kind of a glue in the CBA. I was kind of a glue guy. You know, we had stars. We had guys get picked up by, uh, you know, Robert Smith and Jeff Crompton and uh, Willie Smith. And we had a lot of good, very good uh, NBA players there, but I was kind of a glue guy that could kind of fit in. And so I think as a coach, I know I, I now having those guys out there that just kind of fit in is important. And yeah. I, that was kind of my role in, uh, in Great Falls and George respected that, but um, no, we didn't butt heads. Obviously uh, there were a couple of times I remember he was trying to motivate me um, the one thing I learned afterwards is that as a coach, uh, it takes longer to get over losses than as a player. And in Great Falls, we would go to various bars who would sponsor uh, a post-game party afterwards. And we had lost a game. And, you know, I'm there and having a beer and playing some video games. And, you know, the loss didn't really impact me. But George was George was pissed. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think it pissed him off even more that I had gotten over the loss. So, um, you know, situations like that, but he was really, he pushed me to be a better player. He, other than myself, he probably wanted me, all I wanted was a 10 day, just give me a 10 day. <laughs> and, uh, he, I think other than myself, there was nobody who wanted me to get a 10 day contract more than him. And he wanted the best for me. It never happened, but still it was, um, uh, we had a good relationship and uh, I, I think it was mutual respect as well. 
It certainly seems like it because after you stop playing, you end up joining his staff uh, for the Albany Patroons. And then you head on to the Fort Wayne Fury, but then you go back to rejoining Carl with the Supersonics and the Bucks. So you end up in the NBA with him. Um, was it a big leap or did it feel significant to you to make the move with him to the NBA? Or did it feel very similar to when you were coaching together in the CBA? Well, I'm going to back up a little bit. Um, you know, from that time in 1983, when that was my last year in Great Falls in 1990, uh, in when I was playing in Europe for the rest of that time, you know, obviously George was in Cleveland. He was in Golden State. I uh, played on a summer league team in Cleveland. Uh, I went to training camp with him in Golden State. Uh, I went to visit him in, uh, in Golden State afterwards. So obviously we had maintained a relationship both personally and professionally throughout that time. So in 1989-90, that was my last year of playing. I was playing for a team in the suburb of Paris, and he was coaching at Real Madrid. And I just contacted him. I knew that was going to be my last year of playing. I said, George, I, I want to be your assistant wherever you are next year. <laughs> and, I mean, he had been in the CBA the year before. He was in Real Madrid. I didn't care where, but I said, wherever you are, I would like to be your assistant coach. And that – he said, he said yes, and that yes uh, was huge because otherwise I probably – I didn't have any other coaching connections. I probably would have gone off into business or some other, uh, some other avenues. And, uh, but when he said that, then my career path was kind of set. So when we got to, when we got to Albany, uh, it was eye-opening for me because you just look at the game differently as a player than as, as you do as a coach. I, I was always very respectful of my coaches. I, um, I always, the play, people I admired the most in my life were usually coaches. Uh, but when you're in it and you're looking at the game as a coach and I'm a, you know, I'm a rookie coach in the CBA and, and trying to make things work, it was just different. But, uh, we had a, I think the relationship was was very good, and but the learning experience for me was phenomenal. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, what is your favorite word? I, I'll be honest, I don't have a favorite word. Did anything pop into your head and then you said, no, that's not it? Actually, the word that popped in was dilemma. Dilemma. Okay, so dilemma seemed like a cop-out, but now after reading up on the word, I'm glad that he chose it because the entire foundation of this podcast has been shaken. Okay, first I will admit that for a long time I thought there was a silent N in dilemma, uh, but I figured out for good that it was a double M and I thought all my problems with the word were over. But no, my reading of the word was flawed as well because I've always seen it as basically a synonym for problem which is currently a secondary definition, few, but the true meaning of dilemma is, quote, a situation in which a difficult choice has to be made between two alternatives, especially ones that are equally undesirable, which I had never heard of before, but it's from the 1520s, from late Latin and Greek dilemma, double proposition from die meaning to and lemma meaning premise, anything received or taken. It actually started as a rhetorical device, which I was going to explain to you, but the more I waded into the waters on that, the more confused I got. It is definitely been a while since my college years of critical reading, uh, but I wanted to give you a little taste of what I read in an attempt to explain to you how it began as a rhetorical device. Dilemma is a form of argument, one of whose premises is the conjunction of two conditional statements and the other of which affirms the disjunction of their antecedents and whose conclusion is the disjunction of their consequence. Its form is if P then Q and if R then S, either P or R, so either Q or S. Yeah, moving on from that. In the 1580s, it came to mean more loosely a choice between two undesirable alternatives. And now, despite actual fights between dictionaries and their usage panels, it has evolved into being an accepted synonym for a plight or a predicament. So that brings us here. What a journey that was, Coach. <laughs> okay. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is dunce. A dullard, adult, an ignoramus. 
and I chose this because I love the origins. It came about as a standalone word in the 1570s from the earlier Dunn's disciple or Dunn's man in the 1520s. Now, these were the followers of John Dunn's Scotus, who was a Scottish scholar of philosophy and theology, who, along with Thomas Aquinas and William of Ockham, was one of the leading scholastic philosopher theologians of the High Middle Ages. And then in the 16th century, his followers argued against the Renaissance and humanism, and the term dunce became, uh, per the Protestants, a term of abuse, one that was a synonym for one who was incapable of scholarship. And then by the 1570s, it just became any dull-witted student. That is a very tough legacy for a once great man. But in 1993, Pope John Paul II, uh, I think it's pronounced beatified, Duns, and it was it. That's a recognition from the Catholic Church of you know once someone has passed that they have an entrance to heaven and they can intercede on behalf of individuals who pray in in his or her name. So he's got that going for him, which is nice. But his name is now synonymous with dolt. <laughs> okay, in a sentence, hundreds of years from now, will someone in our modern times, an entertainer, author, or even say I don't know, former president, inspire a legacy like that of John Dunst Scotus? Offering up for the ages a new word like dunce. Now let's get back to the interview. So you eventually end up getting your first shot as a head coach with the Hawks when you're promoted mid-season, right? Which is a tough position for your first time as a head coach because it doesn't feel concrete. Um, And it wasn't uh, eventually, right, for you. It was a pretty short run with the Hawks. You went back to being an assistant with the Warriors before getting another shot as a head coach. When you got that opportunity with the Hawks and – um, ended up going back to being an assistant. Um, were you patient and thought to yourself that head coaching opportunity will come, this just wasn't the right time, or did it feel deflating to not have that be immediately, now I'm at this level and I stay there? Well, um, I was, you know, the record really doesn't um, doesn't show, but I was proud of the time in, in Atlanta. You know, <laughs> so we won our first game that after I took over day after Christmas, we won that. And I, this is great. And then we lost six in a row. And then we won two, and then we lost six in a row. Oh. And I said, "Oh, okay. This is this is <laughs> this is reality here." Uh, but we were over five hundred the rest of the second half of the season. We were over five hundred, and the second season, I, I wasn't even know. I wasn't even sure I was going to be the coach. There was an ownership change. Uh, I won't get into that whole story, but I ended up not knowing if I even was going to have a job the following season anywhere as an assistant or head coach. I ended up going to Atlanta and, um, you know, we had some good times there, but uh, you ask a good question. When, when, when you're fired as a head coach, uh, you don't know if you're going to get another opportunity. Um, you just, in this business, you do the best job you can. You look for the opportunity, the best opportunity that's available if there are any, and you make do, do the best job you can, and and see what happens. And so when I left Atlanta uh, and was able to go to Golden State, it was I had no no qualms at all about being an assistant coach. I'd only been a ho- I'd been a head coach for less than a year and a half, and uh, I was very comfortable being being a head coach. I was too young to obviously retire or anything like that. So uh, I thought it was necessary uh, to be to go that route, and um, it just seemed like a natural fit. So we were with the Warriors, then the Bucks, then the Mavs, where as an assistant, you helped them win an NBA championship. What was your biggest takeaway from that championship run? What did you learn as far as either coaching style or anything else about what it is to win in the NBA by being a big part of, of that Mavs run? Well, being there four years, uh, it was a great run. And first and foremost, being with Rick Carlisle for those four years, Rick and George, because basically my my basketball experience was pretty much the foundation that was laid being with George for, for 10 years. Uh, but being, being Rick's assistant, Rick and George are both phenomenal coaches, but they go at it in a completely different way. Uh, their approach, their personality, uh, detail. It just, it showed me that, that you can be a good coach, uh, with any kind of style. And those two were almost diametrically opposed, except they're both very passionate about the game, very passionate about winning. Um, so that was first and foremost was learning from Rick, another way of doing things. And I was able to kind of mesh that the two between him and George later on. Uh, but you know, you win with great players and Dirk Nowitzki, 
uh, one of the all-time greats. And Jason Kidd, even though he was, I don't know, 35 at the time, is an all-time great. Uh, we had some great role players. Uh, Tyson Chandler was a great defensive center, which was exactly what we needed. So uh, I think you you always know, and I knew this in Seattle with all the success we had in Seattle, uh, Milwaukee, it, it's about the players and trying to get the best out of them. And when you have a players like, especially, and I don't want to discount everybody on that roster, but when you have guys like Dirk and Jason, uh, you're as good as your best players. And those guys had a, I think more than anything else for that run was, uh, I think everybody felt like this, this is it. I mean, this is it for Jason. This might be it for Dirk as far as we're that close. And I think with, uh, with every series win, it became more tangible. And we just, I think with each round, it became more attainable and the focus became more intense. Um, it was, um, it was just a remarkable run. I need a good Mark Cuban story. Um, I have some of my own. One involves me uh, hijacking uh, kindly and by request an ambulance to drive Cuban and a bunch of us home from a Super Bowl party that we had stayed too late and there were no cabs left. So we took an ambulance. Uh, another one is that we were drinking 40s in a brown bag at a bar off of Rush Street in Chicago, and also that he has promised to play Edward 40 hands with me, where you're, you have two 40s, one in each hand, and they're duct taped to your hands, and you can't take either one off until you finish both. So you either have to drink really fast and hope you don't have to pee or things just start to get really ugly near the end. Uh, we haven't figured out a time on that one yet, but I have I have my Mark Cuban story, so I need to know it can be an awesome party after that championship win. It can be a butting of heads. It can be a Hey, can you take a fine on my behalf on this one, Mark? I know you're used to that. Uh, what's a what's a good takeaway from working for him? Uh, you know, uh, being an assistant coach, I didn't have the same uh, interactions with him as the players. You know, obviously he had a very good relationship uh, with Dirk and a lot of the players. Uh, his relationship with Rick was different. Uh, I kind of learned as an assistant to kind of stay out of the owner's view. <laughs> so I don't have any of those kind of stories, but I will say this. Uh, the biggest takeaway I had from Mark was obviously the perception of him was as a very hands owner. And I would say in the four years they were there, I could count on one hand how many times he was at practice. Uh, obviously he traveled with us and was at the games, but he really, from my standpoint, from my viewpoint, he really let Rick coach the team and let us coach the team. And, uh, you know, all you see, you see him behind the bench and you see him cheering and yelling at the refs and all mm -hmm. that. But he really was not as hands on as far as the coaching goes, as I probably expected and probably what people think that it, it could have been. But yeah. um, he was a fabulous owner. I and he still is. Obviously, they've had a lot of success, but um, he's. He's passionate. I think he's. I think he has changed like a lot of people over the years. I think he became, you know, he became owner in 2000, and over 20 years now, he's he's one of the longest tenured owners in the league. And his view of the league and his, uh, he he used to get into it with Stern and uh, the fines and everything. He is he has evolved as an owner, uh, much as the way as you know Rick or George evolved as coaches over time. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a nice balance. So you want an owner who's really invested and cares a lot, but doesn't necessarily meddle in the parts that aren't their expertise, uh, which is good. So you end up with the Trailblazers in 2012. Before you take over that gig, what would you have said if someone asked, or maybe if the if the Trailblazers asked in your interview, what is your strength as a coach and what's your weakness? Uh, back then, um, uh, I would say, I well, you know, when you're interviewing for a job, you say all the right things. Yeah, I work <laughs> too hard. That's my yeah. weakness. Yeah, I'm always working. Too much. <laughs> uh, no, um, I, I would say I have great um, – I had a feel for the game. Uh, I think I've always had a feel for the game. Uh, I communicate well uh, with, with players on individual and on a team basis. I think I have a very good uh, feel for the game offensively um, with my experience of – George and Rick uh, as relative mentors and being around Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, Ray Allen, Dirk, uh, Jason Kidd, and so on. So I, I've, 
I've ran, I've run the gamut of, uh, coaching superstars and, uh, journeyman players and young players, uh, just my experience over time. Uh, the fact that I'd had been a head coach in two difficult situations in Atlanta and Milwaukee, uh, I've grown from that. And then the experience in Dallas kind of put me over the hump. All right. So is there a weakness that you would have admitted to if you knew it was still going to get you the job? You know, uh, I think that's, uh, and you know that anybody who's been interviewed um, knows that question is coming. Yeah. Uh, and how you answer, it kind of depends on how the question is phrased. Like right. if I were interviewing for a job now and we, we had two poor defensive years in Portland, you know, uh, that's viewed as a weakness, even though right. We had some good defensive teams. Right now, that would be the first question from an owner. Is right. um, and I would say that, you know, that's something that I need to evolve with. Is you know, looking at the defensive end and how you can improve that with a roster and schemes and uh, things like that. But right. um, I think, and you know what? Uh, so when I was being recruited out of high school. Um, and I was with guardians and my guardians actually asked the head coach, Dave bliss at Oklahoma. He said, uh, what are Terry's weaknesses? And you know, you're recruiting somebody and you really don't want to lay out, lay out the weaknesses because you're trying to get them to go there. But I think that's always a tough question to answer. Uh, I think it depends on the circumstances and the way the question yeah. is framed. For sure. And defensively, of course, it's hard without the individual game context of who was injured or who was then filling in and what their defensive prowess is. It, it, it becomes uh, a statistical thing without the context a lot of times once you step away. So your time in in, uh, in Portland, obviously incredibly successful. Um, 402 and 318 record uh, playoffs each of the last eight years. Uh, went to the 2019 Western Conference Finals, uh, but in the last five seasons before you left, uh, losing in the first round in four of those five years. Um, how many of those years did you say, wow, we really underperformed by losing this series? And how many times did you look and say, that team was better than us and it would have taken X or Y for us to actually win the series despite that? You know, that's uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, the... When we lost to the Pelicans, we were the higher seed, uh, but uh, they were a tough matchup for us. And uh, win or lose, I think getting swept by them was was tough. Um, being the three seed and and getting swept by a team that, you know, even though in the regular season our our record may have only been three or four wins more than them, uh, you look at the three six seed and you think that's um, you know obviously that's an upset. I looked at you know, over time, how many times were we upset as a, as a seed and how many times as a lower seed did we win? And we, we won more than we lost, uh, as far as a favorite, uh, we didn't lose too many. Uh, that was a season that, uh, a series that we felt like we should have won. And then, and then last season, uh, Denver was the higher seed. Uh, they were the better team all season long, but, uh, they were missing Jamal Murray. And that was, uh, you know, that probably ultimately decided my fate in Portland by losing that series because they were a little shorthanded uh, as a series. I think everybody felt we should have won and and we couldn't seal the deal. Over the course of your time there, did you feel like because I mean, you had a long tenure for an NBA coach, that's a long time to be in the same place. Um Did you feel like you changed drastically as a coach because you had the time in that one position and as the head man? to be flexible with yourself or to be willing to change your approach or strategy? Or did it seem like you were the same same coach from the beginning to the end? Well, I'd like to think I was the same person. Um, you know, the team that uh, in 2012, uh, you know, we basically had three rebuilds in my nine years. You know, mm -hmm. when I got here in 2012 as a rebuild, uh, we had a rebuild in 2015. We had a rebuild in 2019. Uh, each one of those kind of took a different approach. Uh, in 2015, after back-to-back uh, 50-win -back seasons, and you know, basically we lost four out of five starters. That was a different approach than uh, going into going into some of the seasons where expectations were a little higher. Um, but my approach, uh, I'd like 
you know, we are, we were a different team. If you look at the way we played the first three years when we had LaMarcus and Robin Lopez and Wes Matthews, Nick Batum, the way we played evolved after they left and it became more centered on Dame and CJ and the type of team that we had the following six years. Um, so in that respect, we changed. Um, over the course of time with uh, different personnel, you know, we lost personnel in 15, we lost a lot of personnel in 19, and trying to figure out the best way of going about things, uh, you want to adapt to your team. So I would say that um, one of the things we did was uh, try and get the best out of the players each year that we had and what was best for those teams. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily style or just trying to figure out what's best. And I think in the NBA, I've always said this, is that you really have to adapt to your personnel because your personnel is going to change. In college, you recruit to your style. Yeah. Uh, I think in the NBA, you don't have that luxury as much. How was it over the last couple of years dealing with the constant Damian Lillard rumors? Because it felt like no matter how often he said, I want to stay in Portland, I want to win in Portland, there was still going to be the churn of, is he going to go somewhere else or what needs to change in order to keep him? How difficult is that as the head coach or you know, does that affect how you can run the ship? It wasn't difficult from my standpoint. Uh, Damian was the same person. Uh, he continually said he wanted to be a blazer. Uh, he wanted to be a blazer for life. He wanted to be the greatest blazer ever. And so I, as a coach, and I've always been a big believer in separation of powers, you know, let general manager and owner deal with the personnel part. I just, I coach the team. I don't talk to agents. I don't, I don't get into that part of it. So none of that really affected me or the team, because Damien was pretty consistent with his message. Even though he continually got asked about it, he was always consistent with his message. And there was no, there was no ambiguity to it. It was just, uh, he's here. And I mean, let's face it, I wouldn't have been the coach for nine years if it weren't for Dame. And uh, his approach was always the same. And his, uh, the way he uh, replied to media and those type of questions was pretty consistent. So, you know, I respect that you would give the GM the space to do what they need to do and you'll do what you have to. But in a situation like Portland, where so many people felt like you're just a player or two away from winning it all because you've got the superstar in Dame and you've got the supporter in CJ, um, was it difficult not to walk into the office every day and say, what are we doing? How are we getting better? What are we out there looking at? Because you know, the, the expectations are so high. If we don't make those changes, can we expect to make a change in the result? Um, it wasn't difficult for me. Uh, you know, like I said, I coached the team and the team is the team. Uh, you know, <laughs> the expression, he's our coach until he's no longer our coach. Well, you know, <laughs> the player, this is a team until, until they're not, until the player is not there, he's on the team and that's my job. And, um, you know, the general manager Obviously, if you ask my input, I, I do it. But, you know, for me to uh, pound the table or, or right. you know, we got to get, <laughs> get rid of it. Look, I was in the CBA, and there's a reason why coaches are not the GMs. Because if you <laughs> followed the CBA, especially in the 80s and 90s, there were transactions. Uh, if you called a coach after he lost two or three in a row, you could get a deal done like that. Uh, coaches are very volatile and, yeah. and can change their opinions and get this guy out of here or we, we got, and that's why coach, that's why there is a separation because, uh, when you do both jobs, the coaching hat usually takes precedent. If you're upset with players or the way the team's going, that coach and the general manager is usually the voice of reason. Well, yep. when it's the same person, that reason isn't, <laughs> doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you end up, it's described as a mutual parting of ways. We don't have to get into how mutual it was. Um, when you when you look at the tenure and the time there, um, is there a, a regret? Is there something that stands out that you wish you could have finished or done? Or do you say, I was the coach until I wasn't the coach, and now I do something else? <laughs> well, you always look at... Um you know, I don't know it, the regrets of, you know, I wish, I wish we had beaten Denver, you know, that would have been nice. Um, uh, but as far as regrets, as far, I wish I had done this, or I wish I had done that. I, 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 life's too short to, to just, uh, 
wallow in, in regrets. Uh, you try and learn from failures. Uh, you want to learn from successes. But um, I think regret is, is, is not a good thing. So uh, every year, I, at the end of the year, I would, uh, you know, after we lost to the Pelicans, uh, that was a year that at the end of the season, you had to really evaluate um, style, personnel, uh, you know, where are we? And as it turned out, the next year we went to the conference finals. Yeah. But um, I think it all depends on the prism that you decide to look at it through. All right, we're going to do a speed round on a couple of these because I want to get to uh, I want to get to a handful of just looking back on uh, the places and people that you've coached. Uh, first, the most important: where is your favorite post game or pre game meal in Portland? Uh, I'm not a big um, I'm not a big post game. I usually go home and uh, unwind um, or pre game, but. The thing about Portland, the thing I love about Portland, I don't have a favorite. Like, like you asked me my favorite word. Yeah. I, You're just I really like my husband. It's his least favorite question of any of mine. Is anytime I ask him his favorite anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not a favorite person. I've got a. It's just like things aren't black and white for me. There, yeah. the, there's a lot of, there's a lot of gray. So, uh, the thing I've, uh, I, I will say this: the thing I like about Portland is. Uh, you have so many unique restaurants. And I don't know if you've been to Portland or not, yeah. but yeah. there's there are some franchises, but there are a lot of unique restaurants with a variety of food, and it is a foodie town. Mm-hmm. And more than anything else is that since I don't have a favorite, I enjoy trying yeah. a variety of restaurants and try places that I haven't been to rather than going to the same haunt every time. What percentage of Damian Lillard uh, near half court heaves. Were you saying in your head, don't, 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 don't. Good shot. Uh, fewer and fewer as the years went by. <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. I think you that's know, what we he, were all uh, thinking. <laughs> the one thing I learned about that is, and I've always been a proponent of this, is that if he practices those shots and he's good at it. And so for me as a coach, if you're going to have a player work on it, you don't want, you want them to take shots that they practice. And uh, players generally fi- figure things out. It's like, yeah, I can't make that shot, or yeah, I can. And Dame put in a lot of time. It's uh, it's a unique ability. Uh, and so gradually with time, I knew he was going to take one or two a game, and it's like, okay, yeah. let it roll. Uh, who was the best learner of a player that you coached? Oh, man. Uh, that's a good question. I, one of the more cerebral players that I've had was Pat Connaughton. Uh, I don't know if it's about learning, but Pat, Pat was one of those guys that he knew every position. He thought the game, it wasn't so much, you know, coming in as rookies, everybody has to learn, but, uh, and I think you saw that, see that in his time in Milwaukee, but he's a very cerebral player, uh, that thinks the game knows what's out there can help every other player on the floor. Uh, so I don't know if the, I don't know the, learn the most, but he, he's the one that comes to mind. What player was the biggest surprise between who they actually were as a person and a player and the person that you thought before you started coaching them? Vince Carter. Hmm. Uh, I didn't know what to expect with Vince. Uh, you know, we're getting him at the, towards the end of it. What I thought was at that time, I thought it was the end of his career. (laughs) He he went on to play another 20 years. I don't know. Uh, but I didn't know Vince, uh, never met him. And I was expecting, uh, you know, he's a superstar. Um, I probably, you know, I didn't know if he was going to be a prima donna. I didn't know if he's going to have an attitude and the guy just loved to play. He's obviously you've, you've met him. You've talked with him. He's, uh, he's charming. He loves the game. He practiced, uh, he was a true pro and, uh, you know, what my expectation, it, it certainly, dispelled any pre- preconceived notions that I had about him. Who's your favorite coach to work with? Uh, well, I haven't had a lot. Um, you know, I'll say this. I, I really enjoyed my coaching staff this year. Uh, well, during my whole time, it kind of evolved over my nine years. Obviously, we had some changes. But I really enjoyed working with my coaching staff here in Portland. Uh, I enjoyed our coaches' meetings. I liked the banter between us. I liked talking basketball with them, uh, going out to dinner. They were just 
they're, uh, they all had a good sense of humor. So as a group, I just, and I've told them this before is that the, the favorite part of my day was going to the coaches meeting. Cause I enjoyed, awesome. uh, I enjoyed the conversations. Who's your favorite opponent to game plan for either a player or coach? Oh, you know, it's changed. Uh, the game's changed over the years. Um, you know, back as an, back as an assistant, you know, coach, uh, Jerry Sloan's teams. And, you know, when we were in Seattle and we're playing Utah and they ran their stuff and we had our defensive schemes and we'd try and change things up. Uh, that was, that was always a challenge. Um, uh, I thought it was always, a trying to do something against San Antonio was, was fun because of, uh, they were a smart team and they executed well and they had a style of play. Um, so, you know, I think you're talking about two great coaches. I think in general, uh, when you're going against great coaches, that's, that's probably the biggest challenge and most enjoyable. Who's your least favorite opponent to uh, game plan for or Shaq. face? Shaq. Shaq. He was <laughs> – uh, we were in Orlando. I was, we were in Seattle, and he was in Orlando. And so I convinced George. I said, you know, we, we were a big – we double teamed a lot in, in Seattle. But they had so many three-point shooters. And so I convinced George, you know, we ought to – let's see if Urban Johnson can play him straight up. <laughs> and uh, after two possessions, Shaq saw there was no double team. He got two dunks. And Gary Payne said, that shit ain't going to work. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so that's not going to work. So Shaq was just – Shaq was a beast. Uh, yeah. He was such a dominant player. Uh, but – I hate I hate to say any one player because over 25 years there have been so many great players that were so difficult to stop, uh, whether it was Akeem or David Robinson or obviously Michael Jordan and uh, you know I thought the Chicago years and the Triangle was was more of more difficult than anything else because of their style of play and obviously with the roster that they had. You got any good Jordan stories? Not really, other than he kicked our ass since 96. <laughs> I always appreciate stories where Jordan's kicking someone's ass. That's my favorite <laughs> kind. Um, you know, I was prepping for this, and I found the same with Stan Van Gundy. Uh, coaches very rarely have a whole lot of information about them off the court on the Internet. You just learn about where they coached and how they fared and did they win. So what, is, what would you say is your biggest passion other than basketball? Well, uh, being out of basketball right now, I'm going to have to find one. Uh, <laughs> I had a feeling your answer was going to be, I don't know. It's all I do. <laughs> you know, I used to enjoy golf, uh, but my game has progressively gotten worse. Uh, I really enjoy traveling, uh, but COVID has made that difficult. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I'm, I hate to say it. I, you know, I've, uh, even though I like to think of myself as relatively worldly and, uh, but I'm, I'm a basketball guy and uh, it's dominated my life uh, for the last, well, in my entire life. And so I really don't have a lot of passions outside of basketball. I have some interests, but not a lot of passions. So I take that to mean that uh, if you could, you would immediately get right back into coaching either as a head coach, or would you even be willing to go back to being an assistant at this point? Uh, I would definitely like to be a head coach again. Um, obviously that's not going to be this year. Uh, as far as it, as an assistant coach, you know, I, at, we'll see what's out there. That, that's the thing is uh, obviously this year will play itself out and I'll take whatever uh, opportunities as they come along and decide if that's the right thing for me. You're going to try to steal my job and, and become an analyst until that coaching job arrives? You know, uh, there's part of me that would enjoy the the media side of it. And then there's part of me, it's like, you guys, you guys get a bunch of criticism too. Uh, so <laughs> we're in a very public forum where uh, everybody thinks they can do the job better, but I don't know. I think every ex coach thinks about doing that. Um, I don't know if that's uh, something that I would pursue or if anybody has interest in it. You also, I think at that point have to decide, do I want to get back into coaching? And so I need to hold my cards pretty close to my vest in terms of either strategy or being honest about the people I've worked with and the players I've worked with. Um, because some of those doors are tough to close again once you've opened them. Uh, if you want to maintain yep. sort of the ability to, to coach whole, a whole bunch of places, were you surprised or what was your reaction, I guess, to the drama around the hiring of Chauncey Billups in Portland? 
Um, you know, I'd rather, honestly, rather not get into it. I think that's yeah. a pretty complicated issue. And so I think that's that's been talked about. So I, I really don't have any inside information. So I don't think it's really my place. What about your buddy Rick Carlisle taking the Pacers job? A lot of people had you nabbed to go there, former Mr. Indiana and whatever. Um, was that a surprise for you that he ended up uh, taking that gig? Um, well, yes and no. Uh, it's not a surprise in that uh, Rick wants to coach. I mean, he he loves the game and – uh, obviously he got a very good salary. He had been there before he had a relationship with bird and the owner. So in a lot of ways, it did not, it did not surprise me. And when you look at the hirings that, that were, that happened this summer, um, <laughs> Del Harris said that there's only two kinds of, <laughs> there's no such thing as a bad job. There's, <laughs> you have a job and then you have no job and yeah. having jobs is always better. So right. But no, it didn't surprise me. I think Rick will do really well there. Uh, he knows the lay of the land, uh, and I think it'll be a good challenge. He was in he was in Dallas for 13 years, so it'll be a good challenge yeah. for him. So, do you live in Portland now, and is that where you plan to stay while you figure out what's next? Yeah, we'll be here this year. Uh, we'll we'll send spend this year here and see what happens uh, next next spring and summer and. Uh, make decisions then. But no, Portland's a great place to live. We love it here. We've mm -hmm. got friends, uh, love the climate. So yeah, we'll be here for the foreseeable future. Who's the we and we're staying here? Uh, my wife and I, we don't have any kids. That's the other thing is so when you talk about passions, we don't have kids or grandkids. So it's not like we can just go visit the <laughs> kids. <laughs> you know, mom and dad are coming. Uh, no. So it's just uh, my wife and I and our, and our little dog. And so, uh, it's, um, it makes things relatively easy in some ways in that we can pick up and go and we don't have um, uh, any decisions to make with that regard. With schools and stuff like that, for sure, yeah. yeah. And probably as a coach did make it easier throughout the years to pick up yes, and go. Did. Um, as long as the wife is okay with it. Uh, you yeah, I was, I've, uh, <laughs> I've always had a lot of uh, admiration for coaches in this league with families. Uh, yeah. you got to make some tough choices whether to – uproot the family or leave the family and you go. Uh, it's just, I, I think it's good to move every once in a while while you're a child. Obviously I moved a lot, but uh, coaches in this league uh, who have a family and especially the young kids, it's uh, it can be very difficult. Yeah. You know, we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask this because I think I, I disagree with a whole bunch of different people, former players, analysts about this. Um, I love the, the, flexibility and the power that the players have now to choose their destination and to be more in control of their careers. But I also think there is a tipping point after which it makes it really difficult to build a team if a contract is no longer of any worth. If you could be two years into five years and say, I changed my mind, I'm forcing my way out, I'm sitting out. Um, not because I think you should be forced to stay in a situation if, if things have drastically changed from what you were promised, but I just don't know how you could be a superstar and a team could build based on the idea that you'll be there for X amount of years, and then that's not the case anymore. Um, of course, a team can always trade a star, so they have that power and that ability to go against a contract in, in a certain way. But what's your feeling on that trend? I don't know if it's a trend really, but on in the re last couple of years, there being some pretty big names who have just up and said, this contract isn't really valid anymore. Uh I think that's a difficult question to answer because, uh, like you said, the, the freedoms of the players, uh, I think, is important in this league. They worked a long time to get to this point. I think it does make it difficult from an ownership management standpoint to construct a team. Um, you can you can really harm yourself long term with decisions that are made. Um, you know, the one thing I'll say uh, about the NBA is that the whole CBA has evolved. Uh, you know, back in when Glenn Robinson came out and, you know, the big thing about he wanted more than what the franchise was worth. Uh, you know, there there have been issues throughout the years. And the NBA, I think, has always been on the forefront of doing what's best for not only players, but for the league in general and for owners. And so I think this is somewhat of a phase. Um, I, it'll be interesting how the collective bargaining agreement works itself out the next one yeah. uh, to address some of these issues because uh, it is a concern. But I, I think fundamentally uh, the league is you have to draft well. Uh, obviously players can change, but when you look at the successful franchises over the year, I would say, and 
I could be wrong, but 85, 90% of the best teams drafted their best players. And, and that has been a somewhat consistent theme throughout. Now there are obviously locations that attract free agents and, and there are teams that are built through free agency. And uh, you look at, uh, you know, the Lakers, you look at uh, Brooklyn, uh, that's obvious, but, uh, but so many of the teams are built around a good draft, whether it's you look at Damian Lillard here, you look at Jokic in Denver. I mean, you go through the list, Mm -hmm. Steph Curry, people forget about the dynasty in Golden State was built on draft picks. Uh, Draymond and and Clay Thompson and Steph Curry were draft picks. So it's still important to draft well and and retain the players that you draft. Um, But beyond that, the collective bargaining, there's so much that goes into that between players' rights and and profitability and so many that I think it's difficult just to just to make a, a quick statement about yeah. the state of the league. Well, and you have to convince those players to stay. And so a lot of times if they want out, it's maybe you haven't fulfilled the promises of putting the right team around them or otherwise. And so there's always that balance of, uh, of getting them to stick around and fulfill that. Yeah. Contract. And I think people overlook, um, you know, there have been players um, that have moved on certainly. Uh, but you know, some players have been traded and that's not moving on. But uh, I think the fact that Giannis won a championship in Milwaukee, uh, great. that's like, yeah. that's like, you've got two things. One is a small market team won the championship. And two, you have uh, a franchise player who stayed with that team. And yep. those are two of the biggest questions about can small markets team win? Can you retain free agents? And Milwaukee is an example of both. So yep. I think there's always hope, but there's always a tendency uh, certainly from a media standpoint, to really lock in on the major markets and what they're doing. For sure. Yeah, we're uh, we're renowned for that, in fact. And unfortunately, one of the major markets is Chicago, and yet we can't figure out how to play like one and compete like one. But that is a tale for another time. Uh, before I let you go, you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and that you somehow already made me do on my own podcast. It's the Spanish Inquisition. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition is part of ESPN Nation, brought to you by Dr. Pepper. College football is back, and so are the fans. Return to glory with Fansville by Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, being a basketball coach is no longer an option. What do you do for a job? Well, um... At my age, I'll either retire or get into media. <laughs> All right, that's good. Number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Most scared I've ever been? Uh, watching Wait Until Dark when I was about 10 years old. <laughs> Number three, you could be the best in the world at any one thing for one day. What is it? Uh, pianist. Oh, interesting. Classical? Anything. I, I, you know, Rick Carlisle can sit down and play the piano. I think it's just to walk into a walk into a room and sit down yeah. and just start playing the piano is, I think, is one of the coolest things ever. That's how I feel about the guitar. I want to be the person who you just like go camping or you go somewhere and I pull out the guitar and everybody gets to enjoy because. Oh, I, I could just, see you doing that. I could yeah. see you sitting around a campfire and yeah. tunes. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, this is that piano might be a good way to spend your time right now. You got you know, some free time on your hands. I don't know. No. <laughs> These fingers uh, don't work as well as they used to. Uh, number four, a current celebrity from music, politics, TV, or sports can be your best friend. Who would you like to be? Boy, that's tough. Um, I'll go with Barack Obama. Be a pretty good friend. Be fun. Uh, number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Extraneous noises. Okay. Like people who are fidgeting or popping their gum or yeah, chewing loudly. Yeah, their nails, you oh, know, yeah. just, you know, and especially in quiet situations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Uh, I don't know. I can't. Um, not easily embarrassed. No, not really. I've never, done some stupid players, things and never and didn't get never, embarrassed. Yeah, your players never pranked you or got the best of you. And uh, no, 
No, I can't think of any. That's impressive. A life without embarrassment. What a joy that must be. Yeah. I feel like I'm just constantly mortified by myself. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? I don't know. Just uh, maintaining my physical health is at, as you get older, that's, uh, that's probably the biggest challenge. Yeah. Um, number eight, any musician or band, alive or dead, can play at your next party. Who is it? Well... Since I'm a 70s and 80s R&B guy, most of those groups really, <laughs> like if I said the Commodores, it's not the yeah. Commodores anymore. You know? No, so but it, it could be loses... them, them at their peak. Uh, yeah, Commodores at their peak. That's my, uh, that's my walk-up music, Brick House. Really? Yeah. Well, that's very apropos. Yeah. Amazon. Yeah, built like an Amazon. Uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? Oh, let's say... Um, Let's say getting swept by New Orleans. Yeah, that, that one sticks. Uh, number 10, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Uh, honest, friendly, and uh, good guy. That's four words, but I'll allow it. Uh, hyphen, hyphen. <laughs> hyphen. We're going to hyphenate know, good guy. Hey, you've done those TV shows. <laughs> I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Uh, the final bonus question, who should I have on this podcast? It doesn't matter from any industry, any business, just someone I would find interesting. Um, okay. Just any president. Yeah, that's an easy one. Okay. I'm not going to go with any president. There's at <laughs> least one that I'm going to take off the list, but we'll, we'll, we'll allow it. Um, I also have not oh, had, even that would be a good, even I would love, yeah. I would love to listen to that one. People have tried. I don't know if we've ever gotten anywhere with that. Uh, George Carl, I've never had. And I think uh, based on his Twitter takes that have been pretty spicy lately, I think he'd probably be an interesting one too. George would be interesting. He's uh George unfiltered can be interesting. Yeah. 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 Uh, thanks so much for doing this, Coach. It was so great to talk to you and get to know more about you than just the basketball stuff. Um, although, you know, we're still working on those hobbies and stuff. Hey, uh, we can't uh, we can't leave this uh, podcast without you saying goodbye as Moira. Okay, uh, let's see. And I would be remiss not to say goodbye. <laughs> that was excellent. Thank you. As long as you Thank throw you. in the word remiss, you're good. Always. It's, you know, I, every time I do an accent, I have to start with the same thing. It's like the one that gets your brain back into that mode. And yeah. with Moira, it's always, I would be remiss because that, that's, that's <laughs> her go-to. Um, thank you so much, Coach. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Sarah. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. This is where I rant, rave, tell you what to read, listen to, watch. And we are just days away from the start of the NFL season. So I want you to check out two great profiles I read this past week. Mina Kimes on Chargers quarterback Justin Herbert. It's called The Magic and Mystery of Justin Herbert. It's on ESPN.com. And Kevin Clark on New Lions head coach Dan Campbell. It's uh, The Dan Campbell Experience Comes to Detroit. That's on TheRinger.com. I learned a lot about both guys uh, and especially felt like the Kevin Clark piece opened my eyes to Dan Campbell being more than just the bite off their kneecaps absurdities of his opening press conference. Uh, both definitely worth your time. So go check them out. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain. If you've got guest suggestions, questions or more. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. <laughs>